It's a wonderful thing to be part of the church. And there's a lot of people that are down on the church. Um, I can't be down on the church. The church is imperfect. There, there are problems in the church. There are struggles in the church, and there have been throughout history. But the church is unlike any other institution because it's God-ordained and it's spirit-empowered. Um, anyway, let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to talk a little bit about the church from the book of Acts. So we, we, on Wednesday nights, uh, I teach the Wednesday night Bible study, and we just started a series on Acts this past uh, Wednesday. So I've been thinking a lot about Acts, and um, as I was thinking about this message, I thought there, there's some lessons here about the church that we can talk about. Um, it's not going to be comprehensive, okay? As we talk about the church, you might think, well, he didn't mention this about the church. Well, just I'm just saying it's not comprehensive. I'm just going to pull out. Uh, four truths or four principles, four facts about the church. But before we do that, let's go to Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, give thanks to you and praise to you for your Son, Jesus Christ, that song that uh, Don just uh, sang for us. Uh, what a wonderful truth. Ties in with what Pastor Ryan was saying, too, in, the, in his offer, offering meditation. Um, the fact that you have laid down your life for us. I think of that verse in Second Corinthians and he laid down for his life for us that, um, that we, uh, uh, and now I can't think of the verse, but uh, that essentially that we might serve him. He gave his life for us that we might live and that we might serve him. So, Father, we do want to, we do want to serve you. We ask, Lord, that you would guide our time together, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us the instruction that you want us to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first, uh, the first truth about the church that I want to bring out is this. The birth of the church occurred at Pentecost. The birth of the church occurred at Pentecost when Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on the believers. Um, chapter 2 uh, talks about that event. You, you may recall that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he taught his disciples for about 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Okay, and after he ascended into heaven, the disciples were in Jerusalem. The disciples and the group of believers, about 120 of them, gathered together, and they spent a, lot, a great deal of time in prayer over the next 10 days because they were told by Jesus to wait until he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is when Jesus poured out his Spirit. And chapter 2 talks about that, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together, about 120 believers, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues, like flames of fire that were divided, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. So... Um, this phenomenon takes place, this sound of a rushing wind and this, this uh, flames of fire that divide and, and rest on each one of them. And then they each begin speaking in different languages, languages that, they're not, that they haven't been familiar with before, that they haven't been able to speak. And the explanation of what's going on is recorded in verses 32 and 33. So look over at verses 32 and 33. Peter then has an opportunity to preach uh, to a large crowd that has assembled. And in verses 32 and 33, he says in his sermon, God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, 
therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So the manifestation of what is taking place on that day is a result of the exalted Jesus, the ascended Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, pouring out his Holy Spirit upon his people. And thus we have the birth of the church. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit took up residence within them. And that did a few things. For one thing, it bound them close to God. It bound them into spiritual communion with God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But it also bound them into a fellowship with one another. A spiritual fellowship with one another. The baptism of the Spirit binds us in communion with God. It also binds us in communion with each other. 1 Corinthians 12:13 talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism referred to here is not water baptism. This is spirit baptism. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. All of us being baptized together into one body. One body. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the act of the Holy Spirit joining together into a spiritual unity people of diverse racial extractions and diverse social backgrounds so that they form the body of Christ, um, the Greek word ekklesia, or the church. Truth number one. Truth number two is this. The church is the community of believers. The church is the community of believers. The church is the community of believers. Who make up the church? It's believers. It's believers. Now notice what this statement does not include. Um, Notice what's left out of the statement. There's nothing here about a particular ethnicity, a certain ethnicity. There's nothing here about color of skin, nothing about economic status, nothing about class or about gender or about citizenship or about career choice or about family of origin or about background or about you fill in the blank. All right. Those demographics don't matter with regards to whether you can be a part of the church or not. The church is a community of believers. It's made up of all kinds of different people. Go back to chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Actually, begin with verse 4 again. So the, the believers were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, uh, devout men from every na- nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. So all these uh, different people are back from back to the to um, to Jerusalem for the, the festival of Pentecost. But they come from different lands and they hear them speaking, the disciples speaking each in their own language. Verse seven. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own language. The church is made up of all kinds of different peoples, all kinds of different nationalities. Throughout the books of Acts, we read about Jews as a part of the church. And then later on, the Samaritans join the church. And then later on, we read about the Gentiles coming into the church. In chapter six, we read about a large group of priests who trust in Jesus and join the church. We read about in chapter eight, men and women joining the church, Ethiopian eunuch, a Pharisee 
a Roman centurion in his family, a Roman jailer in his family, uh, Lydia, who was a cloth merchant in Philippi and her family joining the church, God-fearing Greeks, prominent women in Thessalonica, prominent women and men in Berea, and so on and so forth, all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and being added to the church by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter, two, verse 40, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says that they were all joined together in heart and mind. This is a spiritual work. You know, when uh, J. John was talking about the, this global enterprise kind of thing, this enterprise is unlike any other inter- enterprise in the sense it's not just a horizontal thing. There's a, there's a spiritual component, the reality that the Holy Spirit indwells each of us and binds us together. We're not just bound together by a common object, a common goal, a common uh, desire, but we're bound together literally by the divine being himself, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ that binds us together. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. In Galatians 3.28, there is not Jew, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what he's not saying, he's not saying that there are, are no men and women in Christ, that there are no Greeks and Jews. What he's saying, all these people are in, are in Christ. What he's saying is these distinctions don't matter. These distinctions don't matter. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what matters. If you trust in the Lord and are repentant before him. The church is made up of people from both genders, all classes, and many, many ethnicities. Little history. Pliny. That's, that's the guy on the left. Pliny was the governor of Bithynia and Pontus, uh, areas in Asia, in 110 A.D., and the guy on the right is the Roman emperor at that time. His name is Trajan. Pliny wrote several letters to Trajan. And one of his letter, in one of his letters, he wrote specifically about how to deal with the Christian problem, how to deal with Christians. Neither Pliny nor Tra, uh, Trajan liked Christians. They were not fond of them. Um, and Pliny told Trajan he was at a loss how to deal with them. He told, Tra, he told Trajan in his letter that he had interrogated some, he had tortured some, Um, He had threatened some. He had executed some. But he had paused. He's currently pausing his policy because he wanted to get Trajan's advice on how to deal with uh, Christians. And uh, the relevant uh, passage from his letter here, for the matter, he, he writes, for the matter seemed to me well worth referring to you, especially considering the numbers of Christians that are endangered. Many persons of all ages and ranks and of both sexes are being and will be called to trial. For this contagious superstition, as it's referred to by Pliny, is not confined only to the cities, but is also spread through the villages and rural districts. The reason I, I cite this is I just want you to see what the church looked like even in the early stages of its development here in 110 A.D. Notice from this letter that this anti-Christian governor recognizes a great diversity within the church. Many persons of all ages, of all ranks, of both sexes. And further, the church is city folk and it's village folk. It's urban folk and it's rural folk. Um, nope, not ready for that yet. The church is a joining together. The church is a joining together of real differences um, without any of the divisiveness of usual, that usually accompanies dissimilarity. 
The church is unity in the midst of diversity. Now, there's a myth. There's a myth that is often said that Christianity is the white man's religion. It's the white man's religion, but that's simply not true. Um, Jesus was born and raised in Israel. Israel is on what continent? That would be Asia. Um, I'm not... I'm back. What? Okay. Apparently, I'm clicking this without... uh, Yeah, sorry about that. Actually, this is advancing me every time. Okay. All right. Well, this is fun. That's what I wanted. Where were we? <laughs> Christianity is Asian in origin. Uh, Jesus was Asian. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin writes in her book on apologetics, most of the world's Christians are neither white nor Western. Now, there are a number of Western Christians. There are a number of white Christians, but in terms of the majority, Christianity is getting less white Western by the day because of the, the uh, intensity and success of evangelism in other parts of the world. So the, the notion that Christianity is the white man's religion, as if, you know, it's a myth. Um, Paul writes, Galatians 3, again, for as many of you of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ like a garment. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's the conditions to being part of the church? Is it, is it a particular ethnicity? No. Is it only one gender? No. Does it have to do with social status or class or income? No. The conditions are, verse 27, as many of you have been baptized into Christ. Many of those who have put on Christ like a garment. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the issue. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you walking in faith and repentance? That's who can come and be a part of the church. Third truth is this. It's the same statement, but we're emphasizing another word. The church is the community of believers. The church is the community of believers. The church in Acts was a community. They did a lot of things together. They were together often. Look again at chapter 2, verse 41. So those who accepted Peter's message on that day of Pentecost were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And here's what they did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to, to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. This was a church that did a lot together. Um, They were learning together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, we read. They were fellowshipping together. They were hanging out together. They were communing with one another. The text says that they, they were devoted to fellowship. They met together in the temple area, and they also met together in smaller groups from house to house, we're told. And they were worshiping together. It says they were devoted to the breaking of bread, which likely refers to communion, like we celebrate uh, once a month here at the church. And they were devoted to the prayers, 
probably possibly referring to organized times of prayer, prayer meetings, if you will. They had done this before Pentecost, and they continued the practice after Pentecost. Verse 46 indicated that they were full of joy together. Verse 47, they were praising God together. Verses 44 and 45, they were helping one another. They were meeting one another's needs. Um, further examples in the book of Acts include in chapter 4. Chapter 4 tells us about a prayer meeting where the believers there were praying for boldness to witness in the face of opposition and that God would back them up with miraculous signs. Chapter 12 tells about a prayer meeting of the church where they were all together praying for the release of the Apostle Peter from prison. Chapter three te- uh, 13 tells about another worship service where they were, uh, pray- where they were together worshiping and the Holy Spirit told them, I want you to set aside Paul and Barnabas uh, for uh, missionary work. Chapter 14 tells about how Paul and Barnabas organized communities of churches in the various towns that they went. And on and on it goes. Chapter 20 uh, talks about a worship service, a Sunday worship service, where Paul was in Troas, where Paul was the guest speaker. And it records that they, had, they ate together and they um, had communion together. All of this to say that the believers were in community. Um, Matthew Henry says of this, they kept up the communion of saints. They continued in fellowship and continued daily with one accord in the temple. They not only had a mutual affection to each other, but a great deal of mutual conversation with each other. They were much together. When they withdrew, they did not turn hermits, but were very intimate with one another and took all, all occasions to meet. Wherever you saw one disciple, you would see more like birds of a feather. See how these Christians love one another. They were concerned for one another, sympathized with one another, and heartily espoused one another's interests. They had fellowship with one another in religious worship. They met in the temple. There was their rendezvous, for joint fellowship with God is the best fellowship we can have with one another. A church is a community of believers. It's hard to be in community with other believers when you're hardly ever with other believers, when you're not actually with other believers. We need to be with one another in order to sharpen one another and in order to stay sharp ourselves. Sin, we're told, is deceitful. And we need to be with other believers on a regular basis so that we will not be deceived and that our friends, our Christian friends, will not be deceived. Hebrews chapter 3, watch out, brothers. Watch out, brothers. He's talking to believers here. Watch out, brothers, so that you won't be, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Watch out, my fellow Christians, that you, that, that, that you are not deceived by sin into becoming unfaithful to the Lord, into turning away from the Lord. How can we watch out? One of the antidotes to this is, is togetherness, being part of a local body, being part of a local church, being involved in the community of the church. Not just having your name on the membership roll, by the way, but actually being a part of the church. The world can wear us down. Um, and that's why we need one another to build one another up. When you are not in community with other believers, you are depriving yourself. But not only that, you're depriving others as well when you're not in community with other believers. Because we've all been given gifts. We've all been given talents and abilities so that we can minister to one another, so that we can encourage one another in the faith. 
If the church, <laughs> if the church was just the pastors, we would be severely impoverished. For if the church was just the responsibility, the ministry of the church was just conducted by the pastors, we would be a severely impoverished church. But we all have a ministry in one way or another in terms of building one another up. Every believer is given at least one spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit. You say, I don't have a, you don't, I don't have a spiritual gift. Well, if you're a believer, the Bible says you do. We say, I don't know what it is. Well, I would say, don't worry about it. <laughs> if, you see, if you see a need that you can meet, then strive to meet that need. If you can give a word of encouragement, give a word of encouragement. If you can pay a compliment, pay a compliment. If you can share a verse, share a verse. If you can sow to help somebody, then sow to help somebody. The Dorcas ministry that was operative here for so long, you know, all the needs that were met because of that ministry. I was not a part of the Dorcas ministry. There was no point for me to be a part of it. I don't sow. I don't do anything like that. But there's a lot of people who... Who do? If you can bake cookies, bake cookies. If you can lend your generator to somebody when their power's out, then lend your generator. If you can sing a song when someone needs a song, then sing a song. You know, if you can fix a car or host a get-together or help with medical and insurance paperwork, um, those are ways that we can minister to one another and encourage one another. A few years ago, there was a, there was a, there was a need for children's church workers Actually, that's, that's typically an ongoing need at our church. But uh, I thought, well, I'll step in there. You know, I'll step in and be a children's church teacher. Um, that, la- that didn't last very long because I discovered that that's probably not one of my spiritual gifts. I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, I saw a need. And I thought, maybe I can help here. Well, I wasn't such a help. Um, but, that's, but other people are. But that's a way that you can discover where God might want you. If you see a need and you think you might be able to meet, try it. And if it doesn't work, then you, you know, try something else. I sometimes come to the work days here at the church whenever we have work days. And most of you know that I'm not a craftsman, um, that I, I don't, you know, tools aren't my, you know, I like books. Tools aren't my thing. Um, so, but I think I have the spiritual gift of grunt work. (laughs) So, you know, so I come and I pull, you know, we were working on the basement, the kids cave and Kelvin said, well, why don't you pull nails out of, out of trim or something? So I could do that. I could pull nails out, you know, you know, wherever you can pitch in. If you're good with kids, volunteer to teach children or be a helper with children. But the point is, if you're not in community, if you're not a part of the church, you're depriving the church of what you could do to help the church of help other believers. That's the point. Remember what the church in Acts was doing together. They learned together. They fellowshiped together. They worshiped together. They helped one another. They ate together. They met together as a large group regularly, and they met together in one another's homes. It sounds like stuff that we can do, though sometimes we have to be a little creative about it right now with the, with the whole COVID thing. Let's move on finally to the fourth one. Uh, yeah, there it is. For the church, opposition is part of the landscape. This is, this, is one of the, this is the fourth truth that's kind of popped out of me as I've been studying Acts. For the church, opposition is part of the landscape. It's expected and normal. Friction with the world is expected. Um, 
The first, uh, first century culture was not friendly to the gospel. It was not friendly to the gospel, much like other centuries. Uh, even on the day the church was born, on the day of Pentecost, there was mockery. There was mockery. Uh, people were in the crowd were suggesting that the disciples, instead of being filled with the Spirit, that rather that they had had too much wine to drink. Um, then just in chapter 3, the next chapter in Acts, Peter and John heal a man at the temple. Everyone's amazed and excited. A crowd gathers. They preach the gospel, and they're thrown in jail. They're thrown in jail. In fact, there are several arrests and imprisonments throughout the book of Acts. Um, I counted at least seven uh, arrests and imprisonments in the book of Acts. And there are other forms of opposition as well, including verbal abuse, such as threats, such as slander. And there's physical violence as well, such as flogging, beating, stoning, even killing. And some of the violence is authorized by the government in the book of Acts, and some of the violence is just carried out by angry citizens. It's interesting to note that some of the believers in Acts were miraculously delivered, and other believers in the book of Acts were not delivered. For example, in chapter 12, there's that prayer meeting uh, where the church is praying for the Apostle Peter, and uh, he's miraculously released from prison. In that same chapter, the Apostle James is put to death by Herod, by the sword. Some were delivered and some were not. I remember uh, reading an article several years ago about a pastor in uh, Colombia. His name was Manuel. And uh, this pastor and his wife had um, were in a dangerous part of Colombia, and they, um, they had experienced all kinds of threats and so forth. In fact, they had been kidnapped a few times as well. But each time they had been uh, released from that kidnap, the Lord had preserved them through all their trials. So the article was focused on how the Lord had preserved them through that. In the same article, uh, there was also this uh, sentence that said his co-pastor was murdered. Just a short, short sentence. His co-pastor was murdered. So there was the focus on Manuel and how the Lord delivered him. But there was also the reality that not everyone is delivered. Some are delivered and some die. In the end, of course, in the end, of course, we all die. And from another perspective, as believers, we're all delivered as well. Interestingly, in Acts 12, you know, Peter is delivered and James is not. But Peter would not always be delivered. If you recall at the end of the book of John, uh, Jesus told Peter that one day he, that he, Peter, would be bound and be put to death. Um, and then Peter uh, pointed to the apostle John and said, well, what about him? <laughs> and Jesus says, uh, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. And as many of you know, uh, Peter was executed under Nero in 64, 65 A.D. And John, as it turned out, it appears, survived all the other. It was the last of the disciples to die. So opposition was part of the landscape in the book of Acts. It was expected. It was, it was almost natural. Jesus had said if the world hated him, that the world would also hate them. I read a blog post this past week of a pastor who had uh, decided that he was going to read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one month. So he read about 40 chapters a day in the Bible, and then he, he, uh, he, um, 
he jotted down several lessons that he learned from that concentrated, uh, intense reading of the scripture. And the second one, the second lesson of his many lessons was this. Death is welcomed by his followers. Death is welcomed by God's followers. And he wrote, I was floored by how the deaths of God's people were described. I was hard-pressed to find examples of people going to their deaths, kicking and screaming. Rather, there was a peaceful sense in which death was recorded. The people who really knew God's character and understood that he was a preserver and protector also knew that if death was on the horizon, it wasn't because God had failed to act on their behalf. They knew it was because he had determined that their role in this story was coming to an end. But there was a confidence, there was a confidence in the Lord that whether he delivered them or whether um, he allowed them to die at that point, that uh, th- that was in the Lord's will. And, of course, we as believers realize, you know, um, my, my, uh, my father-in-law right now is in hospice care. And we don't know, we, you know, we don't know that he's going to make it. You know, we've been praying for his, um, we've been praying for his recovery. Um, so it's a hard time. We don't want him to go because we love him, you know, and we'll miss him. But there's also, there's also this recognition, even amidst all the tears, that he potentially is on the cusp of the greatest kind of life that he's ever experienced to this point we know where he's going you know we we don't want him to go because we miss him we love him um but there's also the recognition that death for the christian that the fangs the teeth of death the fangs have been taken out of death for the believer you know it's just the doorway it's just the doorway into something into something better we've We've grown up in a culture that hates and reacts against suffering of any kind. It's almost our goal. The, our goal in life is to run from suffering, to alleviate suffering, to cushion ourselves from suffering, to buffer ourselves from suffering, as if there's no positive value that can come out of suffering at all. And we have to be careful because we've grown up this way ourselves. This is the kind of culture we've grown up in. And sometimes we'll, we have to be careful that we don't do, that we don't compromise um, ourselves in order to avoid suffering. We've, we've got much to learn from the early church. The attitude of the early church can be seen in verses like Acts 14, 21, and 22. For the apostle, uh, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples, and they were encouraging them to continue in the faith. And this is what they were telling them. It is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Suffering is a part of being a part of the church. Um, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were in prison. And then they get out of prison and they go back to the church. Um, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of, your, uh, of our father David, your servant, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. So the church, essentially, Peter and John get out of prison, and they, the church remembers back in Psalms chapter 2. This is what it's quoted from. Back in Psalms chapter 2. But the Lord said that the, the nations are going to constantly 
um, assemble against God and against Christ. I mean, opposition is part of the landscape. And so then this is their prayers. They go on, they pray. And now, Lord, consider the threats that have been leveled against us. Consider the threats that have been leveled against us. And what? Take away these threats? Make these threats go away? No, rather, grant that your servants, your slaves, may speak your message with complete boldness. Help us to be bold and courageous in the face of the opposition that we are facing now. That's their prayer. We have much to learn from these early believers. I have much to learn from these early believers. Did they, did they ever pray for deliverance? Yes, they did pray for deliverance. Acts chapter 12, again, they were praying that Peter would be set free from prison. It's not wrong to pray against suffering. It's not wrong, um, but at the same time, there needs to be the balance that Peter himself wrote about in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised that... be that opposition comes your way because you are a believer. Don't be surprised by that. Some people have this notion that, uh, you know, once you become a believer, God's going to make everything, you know, soft and cushy for you. (laughs) That's not the teaching of Scripture. (laughs) That's not the teaching of Scripture at all. The church is the community of believers. Um, the church is the community of believers. Community is what we're a part of. And for the church, opposition is part of the landscape. Let's uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about the church from the book of Acts. We thank you for the challenge that Acts, the book of Acts is to us as well as the scriptures. Northside is a local expression of the church around the world. And I thank you for this church. And I ask, Lord, that you would help each one of us um, to grow in our faith. That you would help, that you would strengthen each one of us in the face of a culture that is increasingly hostile towards the the um, the truths that we hold um, dear. Help us to continue to love others. Help us to continue to serve one another. Um, help us to continue to interact with our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our people in the community, and continue to love and serve, um, demonstrating the love of Christ to the best of our ability. Um, we want to do your will. We want to bring honor and glory to you. Help us to do that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? Um, we bow your heads for the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen.